Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Why Climate Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Andrew Holloway, and I would like to again thank the New Brunswick Lung Association for giving me the ability to start making this podcast series. I would like to to thank today's guest, Dr. Robert Moore, who is from the University of New Brunswick. But as always, I'm going to let him do his own introduction with our first question. So, Rob, who are you and what do you do? Thanks a lot, Andrew. So, uh, I'm trying to teach, I'm trying to live by the rules. I try and teach my students. Who am I? I'm, I'm Rob, and I, uh, I'm a husband and a father of three. And that's more important than my career. Uh, but day to day, I teach economics. Uh, I'm trained as a, a behavioral and experimental economist. Uh, so I study how people behave and how they make the decisions that they do. And then I work here at UMB St. John in the faculty business. Amazing. So you can help me understand why Specialized owns my souls for mountain bikes and how they've roped me in all these years. I have a, a, an old stump jumper that I got from one Ooh. of the first that uh, my, I bought from a, a mountain biking friend. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to convince my wife that $13,000 is a smart investment and on an e-mountain bike right now. And it's a very big uphill battle that I'm not going to yeah. win. No. So, so- yeah, I'm aware of the problem. Uh, so the reason we had you on today is we're going to talk a little bit about something that involves the environment, but it is often sort of not in the sort of general ethos of when we talk about the environment. So we're going to start off with a big question, talking about externalities. So what is an externality and in, in boiled down to it? Because that's going to come up throughout this entire podcast today. Sure. So um I, I get confronted with, with oh, it's a trade-off between the environment and the economy. And I, I want to be the person who stands at the top of the mountaintop, the pristine mountaintop with the glacier that still exists, and say, it's not the economy, it's, it's a trade-off between business mm-hmm. and the environment. I'll grant that. The economy is a closed system. I don't know that all economists have thought about that, but technically it's a closed system. So weirdly, the externality are those costs that aren't owned by the individual engaged in a trade, but rather are owned by society, by the the ecosystem as a whole. Uh, It could be a cost, it could be a benefit. And I I confront people with Adam Smith, uh, who I think uh, we've read incorrectly for a long time, in that uh, he talks about, if not for the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, the brewer, uh, you, you don't appeal to their benevolence. You appeal to their self-interest. And I think people read that. A lot of libertarian folk have had that read to them. And that's the one quote they know. And they forget that Smith wrote the theory and causes moral, uh, theory and causes the wealth of nations after moral sentiments and moral sentiments, he places people in the context of caring about each other. Mm-hmm. We've lost that sense of the other. So when I make my decision to drive my car in in the morning and I don't make the decision to ride share, I don't think about the costs I'm imposing, environmental costs I'm imposing on others. Equally, when I do my bit to uh, pick up a little bit of garbage, I'm thinking about how it makes me feel, but it's benefiting the world as I clean up that shoreline or I reduce my pollution. 
there's a benefit that the world re realizes, but I measure it only in well, how much does this do for me? Yeah, it's one of those things of seeing yourself as not just the I, but the we. And it's sometimes a very hard twist as COVID has kind of shown us that a lot of people are not willing to buy into the collective good for an inconvenience against oneself, right? So, And, and we demonized it, right? So yeah. socialism equals communism, as opposed yeah. to thinking about communality, the, the idea that we're part of a community and that, that the strength of me matters upon how strong my community is. Exactly. And I, one of my old profs always said that we were, we is, have it so ingrained in our head and been almost tricked uh, to understand that, you know, people are willing to almost disenfranchise themselves to the point of poverty and health impacts to protect that sort of like, well, like the company is doing the greatest or it's, you know, it's producing all this wealth for the area, even though it's literally killing, you know, your community through cancer rates or whatever. Right. Well, but, well yeah, we see that with, you know, refinery expansion equals good. It doesn't yeah. matter. Uh, even to the point uh, where where we, uh, I think one of the one of the saddest times as an economist uh, I saw was the Canada East expansion pipeline uh, that was to bring Dilbit out our way, and uh, you know this was in the heyday of the Irvings owning all the newspapers, but even Irving executives got in and said, "Look, we don't plan on using the Dilbit. We might use less than a third of it." that we ship each day because we can't refine it. Yeah, Every single ounce of this is almost every single liter is going to go on a ship and be exported away. And we're going to continue to bring in uh, Bakken field hydrocarbon. We're going to continue to bring it by rail. We're going to continue to bring in Saudi oil ships because that's what we can refine. And so it was doing, it, it, they admitted it was going to do nothing to help the New Brunswick economy and yet we had people, we still have people clamoring to say we need energy east. And it, it, even the Irving companies said it's not going to help our refinery. It's going to make them lots of money. They were able to get uh, a, approval for an export. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. I don't, I don't, I don't get why why people are so in demand for it. Yeah, and it's one of those things I always, uh, I'm of the age where sort of Exxon Valdez was the big sort of environmental thing of my childhood and I always remember when I was in high school talking about it and weirdly enough my I took advanced math in Nova Scotia whatever I don't even know if it exists anymore but my uh, teacher at the time always said the thing that drove her wild about Exxon was that from a pure nuts and bolts economy standpoint it was actually a positive because of the amount of wealth sort of wealth in brackets here, jobs created to clean it all up that had to be paid out to the, everyone else. It was a net positive for the economy, even though, you know, we're going to be dealing with that. We're still dealing with the fallout from Exxon. And that was in the early 90s. Right. So it's one of those weird things. And that kind of lends us into the next question is why should we actually care about externalities in the environment and climate change? Like what we've sort of danced around it. But why should we think about externalities when we're talking about these big sort of things? Um. If, well, number one, there's the existential crisis that uh, the more we ignore, the more we put our own lives at threat. 
Uh, this is not a new thing. Economists haven't been writing about externalities for the last, you know, suddenly we came up across them in the last 10 years. Uh, we, we, we viewed envir the environment as the uh, endless giver of uh, to, to us to be used, right? That, that sense of dominion uh, versus stewardship. Uh, so that when, uh, I don't know how many of your listeners will remember the, uh, the heritage moments that we used to get on Canadian TV, but uh, Giovanni Cobote, I remember that, uh, but, but the, the explorer who discovered the, uh, or who, who, with whom or whom we named the Cabot Trail after, uh, but his ships as he sailed across from uh, Europe to North America or to what became North America, uh, outside the Grand Banks, his ships could no longer sail. And when he looked down, it was the cod. Yeah. We have no cod. Sorry, the industry had to close. Why? Because we've overfished them. We've overfished them as ourselves and as, as international nations, right? That externality caught us up. Uh, we, we had um, CFCs uh, and the Montreal Protocol, which, which was able to block CFCs and take Freon uh, out of the environment so that maybe we won't irradiate ourselves to death by building holes in our ozone. Uh, those externalities, those, those sort of um, that that here the cost that the society bears, we've wiped out or we we, we wiped out a, a fish species to the point that we could no longer commercially fish them and change the way of lives of, of, of thousands of Newfoundlanders. Um, but but equally, uh, you know, you look look back to the Y two K bug. A lot of people don't understand how much it costs to actually fight that. My dad had to work on it with the Royal Bank. That I remember him. I have a very not dealing with climate change or anything. Clear memory of standing in Officer Square in Halifax, counting down to Y two K, just looking around, being like, "Well, is this going to be the end of it?" <laughs> like, and people again, you had to be there to understand how crazy it was at the time. A lot of people don't understand that we treated it. The government treated it the same way it has climate change. Well, really, nothing gets needs to be done. Well, maybe something needs to be done, and they waited and they waited and they waited. And then, by the time they finally were able to, and I believe the the failure was in the four digit year code for in COBOL, if I'm not mistaken, it was COBOL, which everybody who made COBOL, if I whatever language it was, they of course a new computer language was going to come out that would replace COBOL in five, 10 years. There was no reason to worry about more than a two digit code. But by waiting, I, I did some research and looked at the amount of money the Canadian government had spent and released to deal with Y2K on a national scale. And it matched after inflation adjusted what the Canadian economy would have to spend to deal with climate change from a report through uh, both the Stern report and corporate nights, uh, you know, the problem or the, or the challenge was primarily this was owned by the banking sector and our financial system and the billions of dollars thrown into the financial system to ensure that the financial system would work, which had other effects on upgrading codes so planes wouldn't fall from the skies and elevators wouldn't plunge to the earth and explode. But, but all of this was because we didn't have that public good nature, that spillover positive effect. But if you go back and you listen to Harper's speeches 
about dealing with climate change when we should have started, well, we should have started decades before that, but it was, well, what good would do Canada if China isn't dealing with it, if America isn't dealing with it? The environment spills over. It's an external good and our, we wouldn't reap the benefits. Yeah, our Canadian corporations would have to modernize, would have to start thinking about how can they make products but produce less pollution. And that would be costly for them. And he didn't want to set up that uh, competitive advantage or competitive advantage to other nations. We've seen Germany take leaps ahead, right? So, so it's this give and pull, but ultimately it traces back to um, we believe we're supposed to only be interested in ourselves and not think about others. We might get as far as our own children, but that's about it. Yeah, and I, I as, as I say, as someone who went to school for all of this back in the day, I still have, I, I fundamentally believe the sort of erosion of the middle class over the last 30 years is actually in, in again, just my personal sort of take as a dash jockey scientist is why the environmental side of things has been such an uphill battle, even though it's sort of staring us in the face because, you know, you go back to when my dad entered the workforce in the, in the mid to late seventies in Canada, when he immigrated, someone working a minimum wage job could buy a home, could have that sort of white picket fence, their income kept up pretty close to the rate of inflation. So you were able to, and again, I'm not saying it was perfect back then, far from it, but in terms of a pure economic standpoint, you could put food on the table, you could travel once a year, you could do the things that are kind of life. Um, and because the middle class has been so eroded, people don't have the ability to have that capacity anymore to be like, yeah, I can pay an extra $10 for this BPA free plastic thing that's not going to kill turtles and do all those things. Some people do the top sort of 20, 25 percent of, of of the population, but the rest don't. And because of that, when you say we're, we're going to have the only way to really deal with this is we're going to have to spend more on things. People are like, I, I can't. I don't have the bandwidth. Right. Like I you know, you have an entire we have an entire generation. I'm a millennial. I call myself a silverback millennial because it turned 40 this year. So I'm at the very old edge of what it is to be a millennial. My entire generation is talking about never owning homes, right? So when you say we're going to increase everything by 15, 20%, that is a really hard thing to swallow because you look at what was before and the two things are just fighting each other, right? You got to spend more to get us out of this problem. I can't even put a roof over my head. Again, it comes back to that we I mentality that you mentioned, right? And I really think that if one if the middle class was better protected over the last 30 years, I think the environmental movement would have had a bigger upswing to it because people were like, yeah, I'm securing my job. I got a roof over my head. Now I can deal with the polar barrels melting 10,000 miles away, right? So I, I think well, they are in lockstep with each other. I, I believe you're, you're, you're correct, but I think there's this accidental benefit, right? Yeah. Notion of communitarianism. Um, you know, can we share cars rather than own cars? Yep. Do, you know, we're, we're seeing, I think, uh, you know, the idea of in Europe, you, you can you can take your bus into the city and park your bikes and you pay a small fee to rent the bike to ride to where you need to be, where there's another bike lock and you just put it in. OK, you were charged a euro to ride that bike in and, and finish your ride. 
Um, we're, we're, we're hearing about co-op housing, communal housing, uh, shared purchases of housing that, that, you know, and in the end, what that does is that integrates me in my community rather than, and, and we start thinking about a bigger us rather than the immediate me and, and maybe me and my offspring, my immediate family. Right. And that, that, that's sort of coming back. So you get those buying clubs that sort of say, uh, how can we buy the food we need together rather than how we individually solve this crisis? That's where I think that, that, you know, that's the, if there isn't an agenda of the, the, the top saying, you know, we're, we're going to crush these and divide the middle class. The interesting thing is the way to survive it is to do it through community, build community schools, uh, don't buy into the system that you're handed because the system is a social construct. You mentioned the Exxon Valdez, which, you know, a lot of people don't realize they just renamed the ship. It still floats today. And it still does. I don't think it might, I think it's still a tanker. Um, but yeah, not only did it do a whole bunch of economic good, the company's fine was reduced after the fact. Um, Marilyn Waring has talked about that, uh, about, about the GDP as a, as a measure and what it misses. Robert Kennedy has talked about it and, and he's got a great quote about, uh, you know, it measures everything but the sunrise that I see and the love of my kid. It, 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 everything that's good that the economy is supposed to allow us to, 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 to grasp all the way we run this market economy, that's after the fact. So as my my grade nine math teacher, uh, because I think math teachers are, are they don't know it, but they're brilliant. Um, I remember yeah, they're them, teaching a bunch of kids a subject they have no interest or want to be there of. <laughs> and I remember my my math teacher saying, uh, "Go and do your Christmas shoplifting." And we were already out of the chair. It's Christmas. We were ready for the break, and then it sort of struck. Yeah, you know, if you shoplift. Uh, the product still is paid for. It was the store already paid for it, but now you got to pay for security guards. You got to pay for insurance. You got court costs. Got to. That's a good thing in our economy. The way we measure GDP, that law enforcement component. Well, what if we had a, yeah, something slightly different? Yeah. So that then opens up to are there positive externalities? You kind of mentioned it at the top. Um, when it comes to the environment, and climate change, like are there things we are slowly trying to metric in or is it more just they're nebulous and maybe one day they'll be factored into the economy? So, so there are elements, uh, building a strong public transportation system, that's sort of becoming a requirement mm -hmm. that is really, you know, we, we, we have to start thinking about, uh, you know, how do we build cities that are public transit accessible? Um, I've always I'm, I have a passion for public transit like I've done it basically my entire career been in whether it's biking or the public transit system that exists in Fredericton um, and I always find it funny because they talk about oh you know we can't increase the buses because we'll have to buy more buses I'm like well you increase roads and no one's sitting back saying you're not increasing the fees on roads right like to me public transit is always should be a public trust it just exists use it don't worry about the cost behind it. If you're going to dump $100,000 in ugly art in a roundabout, we can afford a public transit system that, you know, doesn't make you money in the back end, right? Well, well, and it makes you money. It just doesn't make you money in the standard way because we yeah. keep 
talking about the revenues it has to cost. Uh, it has to, it has to pay for itself. And you don't think about, yeah, but with a good, solid public transit system, you don't have to build as much and upkeep as much in the way of private parking. Yep. You forego a degree of climate change. The bus is more efficient at transferring, transferring uh, 60 people around the city than 60 individual vehicles. Um, you know, I know Fredericton, uh, so, so here on the St. John campus, we're dealing with uh, commuter issues. And, you know, where can we involve ride sharing? How can we make buses uh, work better with our campus, uh, but but in Fredericton, and I've got two kids there, and a bunch of kids, my kids' friends are there, and you know how many of them are looking to get cars to park at a very expensive and very crowded parking lot. Uh, I think my kid, uh, I, I knew someone who had to sign for a parking pass, and it said having a parking pass is not a guarantee of actually being able to park. Oh yeah, and they're walking distance from school. They're, you know, and they're all taking individual vehicles, yet they're literally just going down the road. Uh, you know, it, it, not the same options here, but that doesn't mean we can't look at uh, public transit in our community. You've got a rural province that's just grown by 50,000 people. How do we build rural systems for public transit? Uh, Trevor Hansen's doing some work there, but also Ypres-Watt, UDM. And uh, these are, I think... There's, there's, you know, in, in some sense, I think the communal shift, that idea of thinking about people forming community gardens, those, that, that subtle shift that is people reclaiming the economy, right? That mm -hmm. I think is the important part. That's, you know, and, and so we're, we're understanding the importance of teaching future generations of, uh, and so we're getting, we aren't there yet investing in our schools, but we, we are saying the importance of education, which spills over the more educated the citizenry, it's not about your income, it's about your smarts. Yep. So and I think how... there are positive externalities and anytime we do cleanup, uh, you know, push yourself that little bit further uh, because the benefits that accrue to society are bigger than the benefits. You know, I save lights in my house when I turn my lights out. My dad taught me that in the I don't know, 1840s or whatever. Uh, make sure the lights are all off. Why'd you leave the room? And for my dad, you know, I think it was our Scottish heritage. You know, save money, save money, save money. But now it's, you know, don't just turn the lights off in your room. Think about whether you need the light on in the first place. Think about whether you can go to the slightly more expensive and cheaper to run LEDs. Start thinking about this isn't just for my household and our savings. I'm also doing a little bit to help the planet. Yeah, it's the we over the eye. And that can be a hard, hard sell because like driving an F-150 for your commuter vehicle is ingrained in New Brunswick. Like it's that's just the reality, unfortunately. Um, so then that kind of as we sort of finishing up that question we were at. So what gives you hope for the future or do you have any hope for the future as it sort of your work and the overall health of the planet or the impacts to climate change? Do you see at least a light sort of not at the end of the tunnel, but in the tunnel that allows you to keep going forward? I always say mine is Gen Z. They seem to not care about any of the old guard and they're willing to burn the planet to the ground to sort of save it. But um, yeah. Yeah. Uh I'm starting to see a change in attitudes and that that's hopeful. Um, you know, we're seeing the rise 
everybody now wants the community garden. You're mm-hmm. starting to see that communality, that that idea that my community and our, our, our my neighbor matters. And I think we're seeing that in um, you know certain degrees of of uh, political shift. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't get that global warming at the time uh, was raised in Canadian Parliament. I think it was dates back to 1986. So this is not a new problem. But we're seeing that shift. We're seeing, um, you know, creative youth innovate around their ways. I can't afford a home, but maybe I can work with other people to jointly afford a home. And then all of a sudden you start to say, hey, if my small family has kids and the upstairs family doesn't have kids, well, now we've got some built-in babysitters. Hey, we can share a meal once in a while. I'll just cook a bigger pot of spaghetti or, or, or squash or whatever it might be. That, that concept that maybe we can do a little bit better than that system we grew up with, right? The, the, the people aren't afraid. They, they get why a tax system exists. I mean, if, if, if you go back to the heyday of American growth, the marginal tax rate, the, the tax rate on the last dollar for the very rich was in the order of 90%. Now, if they are getting taxed, it's it's in the, you know, 15%, 10%. And lower taxes is better always. And it's like, no, my tax dollars, people are, are buying into the line. My tax dollars provide stuff. But they're also starting to vote by saying, what stuff do we need to provide? Is it more, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Or is it more, how do we do well? What's this policy do for my neighbor? How does this reduce um, the challenges of having a low income? Because income doesn't describe people's capacity. Income just has their earnings. And, and, And we're seeing that shift. And I think, you know, Young people aren't buying the lie the same way they used to. And, you know, immediately low, low taxes, great economy. I do better. If I do better, everybody is doing better. It's like, no, let's look at the system more, more completely. And I'm excited, too, that, that you know, it seems to be people are coming around to the market is a social construct. It's one way of running an economy. It's not the only way. Our military system does not run using a a market economy. It's a command economy. It's all the things people would say are wrong with Russia. But, you know, I want a command economy that's going to go out on search and rescue and not, you know, well, I'll pay the most to the person willing to search this grid line and let's have a market and see who's willing to. No, of course not. You just want to get people doing their job. And, And so I think that there's a lot of hope as we go forward in the future. We're very... uh we're a resilient species and we're a species that has uh, the capacity to build things. Some of those things we build break it, but we also have the way to engineer it, to change it. And I think that's given me hope. Yeah. My, I always sort of lean on my dad's famous quotes, or at least they're famous in my head. And, you know, we are a 1159, 58 species, right? Like we, we have the capacity to fix these problems. But we we historically wait to the last possible second to address them because of everything behind that clock, right? And that's always the hard part is to overcome that sort of mentality of like, ah, oh, we'll we'll push that down the road. We'll push that down the road. And my wife and I always, I always joke that when we were in, 
first year environmental science in 2002, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm getting old there. Um, you know, they talked about that by the time I was in my 70s, I would start to see the impact of climate change really start to hit home. And it's th it, the timetable's already shifted 30 years, right? So it's, I'm hoping that while we will have to deal with some things of climate change, that we won't deal with this sort of catastrophic world ending level stuff that uh, could be on the horizon. I, all these podcasts I've been recording kind of get eerily dark towards the end. So I'm going to try and end uh, on a positive note here. Uh, well, the second to last question is, what is the one question you wish I asked during this interview that I didn't? And how would you respond if you have any questions I didn't ask? Um, I don't know that there are any I get. I guess. I guess the thing I would want to say, rather than than the question, because I still don't know how to ask the question myself. Um, but is how do we get people's behavior to accept the fact that it's a we, it's not not. And you know, as a behavioralist, we're we're, you know, if. If my team in a tug of war, uh, you know, I, I stand to win or lose by watching my team pull on that rope against whatever the other team is. In this case, you know, the environment, which is going to, you know, do what it does. The issue mm -hmm. ultimately is, do I sit in the corner and, and cheer them on? Or do I say, hey, maybe part of my job is to be on that rope too, doing the right things. And I think that that's where, you know, trying to get people to understand that, that it, you know, I don't care what the market says. The market's a tool to solve a problem. How do we produce what we produce? Where do we produce it? And who gets it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's all an economy has to do. And it can be done by somebody ruling at the top and the King's benevolence gives you your stuff. Or it can be through, through us saying, how do we work together at these problems? And sometimes markets you know, get me apples. And that's great. I don't need to worry about apples, but perhaps we need to be worried about fish in the ocean or saving coral or whatever the, the issue might be. How do we take ownership of that social system, that social construct? And I think that, you know, in the end, it, it ultimately has to be about changing behavior. And, and, and because, you know, the death of the cigarette industry was not primarily through the fact that governments would tax it and make it cost prohibitive. It was through the fact that we made it seem sickly and uncool. Yeah. And that's, you know, we need to do stuff to make working with the environment fun. It, it, it's exciting. And I think, you know, the resurgence, I think now more than never, uh, is a great time to be uh, embracing the, the calls to action from TRC. Yeah. And start looking at, at the people who lived in this land uh, and continue, despite much efforts to live in this land, uh, because that, that concept of uh, seven generations before and seven generations after with you in that middle really is important thinking. We've got to think about, you know, what have we learned? Um, what do we need to pass on? And if we can do that, then... We truly become a community we, thinking about not our not only our past but our future and and that resurgence is is you know been waiting to happen 
that's great. And it's great that it is, you know, we're, we're across the country, you know, it's very unfortunate to think about um, all the, all the children that we're now reading about from residential school. Mm-hmm. But man, we've got, you know, as we learn about this and then we start to say, well, you, but what, what were the teachings that people worked so hard to eradicate? The calls to action give us some answers to say, listen to them, start talking to them. And uh, I think that that holds hope for the future. 100%. And it's one of those things that you need to like, um, sort of think past yourself, if that makes yeah. sense. I, I, I always say I, I have taken enough astrophysics to be dangerous in a conversation and know absolutely nothing about what I'm talking about. But one of the people I listen to constantly is an astrophysicist from England named Brian Cox. And he's very famous because he takes in the same way, like Neil deGrasse Tyson takes very complex things and sort of boils it down. Like this is a black hole. And, you know, his Twitter was on fire because at the time of this recording, they sort of figure out what a black hole sounds like, if that makes sense. And it's just fascinating. But he always said, so he believes obviously that, as an astrophysicist, that there is life out there that just math makes too much sense, right? But he said, take it the other way and say, imagine that we are the only thing in this infinite expanding universe. If that is true, then what we have should be protected, right? And imagine saying you have one of one of something that is the most important thing to you forever. And he always uses his a hug from his dad because his dad passed away when he was very young, right? So it's one of one. It's a memory I will have forever. I cherish it more than anything that should same feeling, emotion, gut willing to protect at all costs thing you hold dear should be encapsulated to our planet because as it stands right now, we are one of one, right? We are just now, could we be other ones of ones out there? I tend to think yes, but that's a different kind of podcast and different kind of debate. But like, it is that like, if it is that precious, we should be protecting it at all costs. We shouldn't be putting the interests of, textile industry over it or whatever that other interest is right and that's the way i kind of approach my thinking on the environment is it's it's a one of one sort of thing yeah and the game theorist in me uh you know when i play a game against you i can enter that game and think can i win can i lose uh should i compete should i cooperate mother nature doesn't care no mother nature is a physical system uh that isn't it will react, but it will react the way it's going to react. And, and you know, scientists, if anything, they've underpredicted what's going to be happening. That doesn't mean it's bad. It's, you know, at what point do we wake up to the reality of, you know, fight all you want, but we know the side that's going to win. So let's go with that side. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you know, that that's, if, if, if you can learn to accept that, that's a... Uh, you know, pretty peaceful existence. The other option, though, is you've got people who say, hey, if we know the world's going to end, let's go out having a great big party. And I don't care how many people die when I, as long as I can fly my uh, spaceship to Mars. Oh, Elon. Um, Yep, (laughs) that's probably a good place to end it. So we have our final question we ask all of our guests is, and it can be where you want to visit, not necessarily live, but uh, if you could live, visit any place in the world, where would it be? I uh, I have been involved in scouts for a long time. I remember taking my cubs just down the road from us uh, on the Kingston Peninsula and uh, going for a hike. The hike was led by birder Jim Wilson. Three hours later, and we made it 200 meters. 
<laughs> going to the backyard, man. I mean, I, yeah. uh, we're in a we're in a wonderful world where you can uh, transport yourself uh, virtually anywhere. It's not necessarily cheap for the environment for us to do so. But the reality is, if yeah, I think if we could find uh, happiness where we're at, it's not that other places aren't great, but where we're at is pretty awesome too. I just and need more ocean. Landlocked Fredericton, I miss surfing. That's my I, I need well, more surfing availability. Well, we've got a little bit of it down here. Uh, I know they surf out in near Redhead. So you're always yeah, I I've heard I've is I've never ventured into it. It's kind of one of those things where you got spoiled where you were. So I, you're just like, I know what I want. Uh, you know what? But, I love to go out fishing. I got lakes around me, I've got a river near me. I'm I'm you know, I like to go away, don't get me wrong, but I love it where I'm at. And that's the main thing. You just got to love where you are. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time. And uh, that's a good spot to end it, I think, for today. So thank you again, Rob, for taking the time to talk to us about externalities and the sort of side of the environment. And uh, all his information will be in the show notes. And please like and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time.